Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. We've been having too much fun for you guys to be that sleepy when the, oh, the pastor's in the pulpit, now it's time to go to sleep. I mean, that's what that felt like right there, I'm just going to say. Stick with me, let's go. I know he's funnier than I am and all of that, but you can stick with me as well. It's good to be with you. My name is Drew. If you're at home worshiping with us, uh, welcome to you as well. Uh, I do love this time of year, and it's neat to see the church full. Apparently, we need to have the kids sing every week, although I think the whole fir- the front of the room is shook because nobody's sitting in the place they normally sit. You know how people get about that in church sometimes, you know what I'm saying? So kind of pray for this area of the room is all I'm saying, that everybody's going to be okay up here. Uh, no, it is really, really great to celebrate with you this morning. We are beginning uh, an, an Advent series. We do this every year for the four weeks of Advent, but we're going to stick with Isaiah. We skipped some really crucial parts of Isaiah as we went through it this fall. We're going to come back to those, the parts that explicitly point us to Jesus, and perhaps this morning the most famous of all of those passages from Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 2 through 7. So if you want to turn in your Bible there with me, you can. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It's also on the screen behind me and on your screen at home as well. Uh, These will be very familiar words for many of you, but let's read together. Beginning in verse 2, the prophet says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom he will sit to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so... Like I said, you're probably familiar with this passage, and uh, I wish that we had a time to treat the whole thing, although I will tell you, a few years ago, we took four weeks, and all four weeks of Advent, we just did these verses, so I feel like I'm off the hook from having to go into every detail here. You can look at those sermons up if you want to. What I want to focus on this morning is really just one line, and then draw implications from it, and it's the line where it says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. I was talking with a friend this week, and I was anxious and upset. If you know me, I can get that way from time to time. About, I was just worrying about some things and uh, talking with a friend just in a casual conversation. Uh, and his advice to me was so good. He just looked at me in the middle of my, I don't know if it was complaining or just venting. He said, Stop trying to run the world. That's a good friend there. I hated him for about five seconds, but it was really good advice. Now, I know it's not true just to me. What about you? Do you ever get caught trying to run the world? Maybe not the whole world, because most of us don't have that kind of hubris, but maybe your house, your Thanksgiving celebration, I'm sure there was none of that going on this past few days, your kids, your classroom, your, your business. Do you ever get caught trying to run the world? Now, some of this is good, so we got to say that at first. 
As God's, as God's image bearers, having dominion is hardwired into us. We were created. You were created to rule. But to rule as God's ambassador, to rule as, uh, as his representative, not as his replacement. And for the four weeks of Advent, we are, as I said, going to continue to look in Isaiah. Isaiah uses soaring language to describe God's dream for the world. And God's people, the nation of Israel, were an important part of seeing that dream become a reality. But time and time again, they failed. And in the wake of their failure, there emerged the vision from the prophet of a singular person who would uh, emerge and, in fact, remain true. The kings of Israel had failed, and so the prophet would talk about God sending a king, the king, right? The nation, God's servants, the collective, you know, the servants of God as they live their life in the world, they had lived selfishly. And so Isaiah said, well, then God's going to send a servant, the servant, who would save the world through sacrificial love. And so we see this singular person begin to emerge as you read all throughout Isaiah. Here in Isaiah chapter 9, he is a child, the child, the chosen one, if you would, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 describes a crisis in heaven, a moment, as you read, where there is no one able to break the seals of the scroll that is in God's right hand, no one worthy to run the world, and all of heaven begins to weep. There's no earthly king. There's, there's no political party. Not you, not me, no one worthy. And John begins to weep until there's this moment when the lion who is also the lamb, steps forward, having conquered, and he takes the scroll from God's hand, and all of heaven at his coming begins to sing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the one. The one, right? And that is our Advent theme. Do you see it on the screen behind me? Jesus Christ is the worthy one. So let's look in a little more detail at this, at this phrase, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and talk about a number of things. First, I think that phrase shows us, or at least highlights for us, why we're unworthy to run the world. But secondly, why he is worthy. And then finally, what happens when in you, what happens through you, when you trust in him, not in yourself, and put it all on his shoulders. You become the light of the world. Okay? So let's look together. First, what would the world be like if the government was truly on our shoulders? <laughs> what, what, would, what would the world be like if the government was on any other shoulders than his? Or what makes us unworthy to run the world? See, sin, if you want to distill it down and define it very clearly, sin is the belief that the world would be better off with me in charge. Not God, me. Not you, me. Not the president, me. Not the Congress, me. You with me? Not my boss, me. Not my husband, me. Not my wife. How far down that rabbit hole do I have to go? So it's the belief that the world would be better off with me in charge, and then the acting on that belief by trying to control everything and everyone. We're all trying to run the world. I mean, just look at the way we treat one another and talk to one another. Look at how grieved we are when... Someone disagrees with us. We grasp for power and build little kingdoms for ourselves and protect them at all costs. Politicians do this. So do pastors, by the way. And so do stay-at-home moms. 
Isaiah says these godlike aspirations are the cause of all the darkness that is in the world, not the solution. Now, see, that's the first thing you've got to see. Isaiah 9 here begins with darkness. Do you see it? Look, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, that is how the prophet describes what life feels like sometimes, right? What, what, what life can be like. Fleming Rutledge says, Advent begins in the dark. We are moving further and further in the month of November into December into the darkest days of the year. December 21st is the winter solstice. It's the day where there's the, the least sunlight and the most darkness. We sit around the dinner table during Advent season, at least my family does, in the darkness. The first thing we do is turn off all the lights and sit in the darkness before we light any of the candles. Because we're acknowledging that the world can be a dark place, a scary place, a dangerous and unpredictable place. And the season of Advent is when we are to be most honest about what the world is really like and to be most honest about our role in making it the way that it is. Darkness in the Bible is a metaphor for judgment and God-forsakenness. Jonathan read, 1 John, that God is light, so wherever God is, there is no darkness, and wherever there is darkness, God is not there. The universe was, at first, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, void and dark, and the first thing God did was speak light into existence. But when humanity sinned, when we started to grasp for power and wrestle it away from God's hands, when we turned away from him and took it upon ourselves to run the world without him, all of the creation started to revert back to that original darkness of pre-creation. See, it's a mistake to blame God for the darkness. The blame should be placed upon our shoulders. This is what the world becomes when we insist on running things apart from him. Isaiah 9, of course, follows right behind Isaiah 8. Uh, and so at the end of Isaiah 8, it says that because of, of the experience of the world being broken the way that it is, the people looked to the earth for some kind of light. You can look at those verses there later if you want to. They begin to consult mediums. They turn to magic for solutions. They begin to look to the experts, to the pundits, to the scholars and the politicians for help. They're hoping in human resources to fix the world. But there is no help. Were Isaiah writing today, he might describe the people looking for the light within themselves. Because that is the most widely held belief in our day and time, that the power to change comes from you. That the reason for the darkness is that you're letting the social norms snuff you out. You need to let your light shine. That's how we light up the world for everyone, to have the freedom to be their most authentic self because the light comes within us. It's being hidden within us and we need to let it shine out for the world to see. Isaiah disagrees. He says that the light that can push back the darkness, it doesn't come from within you. And it doesn't come from the world. It comes into the world from outside of the world, from heaven. Which is why when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, a star appeared in the night sky. A heavenly light as a symbol of the heavenly light that had come into the world, lighting up the darkness. And so we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was the light from outside the world, coming into the world, to lead the world out of darkness. And so John goes on to say, in him was life, and his life was the light of men, and his light shines in the darkness, so that the darkness cannot overcome it. That is our gospel. The light doesn't shine from us, the light shines on us. Do you see the difference? You with me? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On them a light has shined. God himself has come into the world to rescue us and show us the way out of the darkness, the way out of, uh, out of our own darkness. The way, in that way, 
out is to sun ourselves in his reality, to submit to his word, to unload the burden of the world from off our shoulders and gladly give it to him to do. That's what it means to believe. So can you do that this morning? Can you sigh, sigh of relief and stop trying to run the world for one minute because you believe that he is the one that is worthy? Second, to help you do that, to help you believe in that way, See, it's, we see why it's not good for you and me to run the, run the world. Secondly, we see why it is good that the government be on his shoulders. What makes him worthy to run the world? And there's a lot that we could say here, but I'm going to focus just on a few things very quickly, four of them actually, as they just present themselves as you go through this text. And the first is, I think we're told here that it is good that the government is on his shoulders, not ours, because of the miracle of the incarnation. Now, I've already alluded to this, this child that we're promised here, born, this son given, the one with the government on his shoulders. Look there, verse 6, he is called, his name is Wonderful. Now, in the original language, this is confusing. In the original language, there's just a single word there. It says that it's just wonder. His name shall be called Wonder. It's a noun, not an adjective. He's a wonder, and that word is a technical term in the Bible for the miracles that God performed in the Exodus as he brought his people out of Egypt. The event, we're told here, that is being described by the prophet would be supernatural. It would be something that only God can do. It would be a miracle. This child would be of miraculous origins. His birth would be a miraculous birth. W.H. Auden, who himself was not a Christian, in a famous Christmas poem that he wrote, said this, Uh, This is probably going to be a little hard for you, but I hope you can stick with me. He says, cold the heart and cold the stove, ice condenses on the bone, winter completes an age. And the imagery there suggests the winding down of all human hopes, the realization setting in. Uh, And then he goes on, right? Winter reminds us that all of our hopes, you know, eventually become just ice that condenses on the bone. He says, was the triumphant answer to be this? The pilgrim way has led to the abyss. And what, he, what he's saying here, again, is this is what we've already said, the pilgrim way, this human striving apart from God, it all leads to a dead end, what he calls the abyss, the impotence of human wishes, the collapse of human hopes. And he's despairing because he doesn't believe any, anything beyond this world here, but he says this, we who must die demand a miracle. Because there's no other way. There's no other hope. He says, we who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Now Fleming Rutledge describes Auden's miracle there as the moment when the impossibility of the human condition is met by the possibility of God. Let me say that again. The moment when the impossibility of the human condition is met by the possibility of God. The very first part of faith is coming to the place where there's nothing possible that can save, only the impossible. But that's exactly what we believe, that the impossible has happened, that the child here is God in the flesh. Christmas is the moment when the impossibility of the human condition was answered, was met and answered by the possibility of God. Now, I'll be honest, I expected that to be an amen moment there, because that is the thing, right? I, that... When the impossibility of your lostness was met and answered by the possibility of God, it means that every other moment, 
there is the hope, if that is true, if that's what happened, if that's what we spend all of these weeks anticipating and celebrating, if that is true, then it means that every other moment, at every other moment in your life, there is always the hope that whatever impossibility you're facing, it might also be met with the possibility of God. And that's one of the reasons why he is worthy to run the world. But secondly, the second reason that he's worthy to run the world is the fourfold name that we're given of him here in verse 6. This is the famous part of the passage. And in the Bible, names are descriptive. A person's name tells you something about their character. And here, the child is called a number of things. You see there, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, each of those means something specific. But together, they show us why we should put our trust in him and not in ourselves or in any other earthly political movement to lead us out of the darkness. Because, and this is, I'm just stealing from um, Ray Ortland here. He says, as wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies, and so we should follow him. As mighty God, he has the strength to defeat his enemies easily, so we should hide behind him. As everlasting father, he loves us endlessly, and we should enjoy him. As Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies, and we should welcome his dominion, taken as a whole. The names mean that he has both the strength and the heart to be up to the task, because he is both God and man, right? A miracle, with all of the attributes of God accessible to him, but with the full range of human experiences to soften his heart to our sins and struggles. And I realize... For some of you, that, how inconceivable that might be, but without it, there is no Christianity. Without the doctrine of God, of, of God in flesh, of this child being both God and man, there is no Christianity, at least not since it was settled in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. The church has always held on to this, that this is our dogma, this is our doctrine, this is the essence of our faith, that he is both God and man in one person, a miracle. But thirdly, there's a third reason why he's worthy to run the world. And you see it here in, in verses 6 as it comes to an end and then into verse 7 where it begins to talk about, the prophet talks about his effectiveness and the inevitability of his success. So it's stated plainly in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You could say it this way, history is going his way. Isn't that great news? History's going his way. Now, I know it doesn't feel like that. It may not. There's a new coronavirus strand in South Africa somewhere. And every, right? It may not feel that way. The world might be abuzz with all of the stuff that's gonna, we're going to fall apart at any moment. But this is where we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, the words here are really important. There's three of them in the verse that I just read. And the first, I want to take them one by one just very quickly. First is the promise of peace. You see that word of the increase of his government and peace. His government is synonymous with peace, and that word, of course, is shalom. And the best definition of shalom I've ever heard is from Cornelius Plantinga. He defines sin simply as the vandalism of shalom. Uh, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. That was the title of his book. And so shalom, then, is just that. Shalom is describing a state of being where everything is the way it ought to be. Ronald Reagan famously said the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, do you remember? I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> that has continued to resonate because of our experience with government. Typically it is that it takes things that are messed up and only makes them worse. 
but not his government. As his government increases, shalom increases. That's what it says. You want shalom to come to the earth? Make Jesus reign in those places. You want shalom to come to your family? Jesus has got to reign there because wherever his government goes, wherever his authority goes, shalom goes with it. And with shalom comes both righteousness and justice. Now, we're going to come back to these words next week, so I don't have to spend a lot of time here, but righteousness just refers to right relationships, people being rightly related to one another because they're rightly related to God, the strong not taking advantage of the weak, but disadvantaging themselves for the sake of the weak. And justice just refers to right rules, structural and political rightness, institutional rightness. That's what justice means. So laws and systems that do not favor one group over another, but are equitable and fair, and provisions for those who are particularly disadvantaged, like widows and orphans and immigrants. These are Christian ideals because they are the foundation of his kingdom. His government will increase. That's what the prophet says. We walk by faith, not by sight, but his government will increase. And as it does, shalom will increase and righteousness and justice will increase. And so Jesus described the kingdom in the gospels as a mustard seed that eventually and inevitably grew, starting as a very small seed, but becoming a huge tree. And I don't know how to read that parable in this verse, except to expect that the kingdom, which is now already in the world, will continue to take root and grow. And wherever it does, and in whatever place, among whatever people, there will be an increase of shalom and righteousness and justice. But it will be, in some sense, incomplete until he comes again. And then when he comes, it will happen fully. When he comes, he will bring a massive correction to all the evil, the systemic evil, the systematic evil in the world forever. Then, when Jesus comes again, all of the old will go away, and then it will only be shalom and righteousness and justice forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's why he's worthy. But the last reason that he's the only one worthy to run the rule world is that there's a surprise. And the surprise is just meant to just create wonder. And the surprise is that the son that is given, you see here in verse 6, will be a child. Now, Isaiah 9 is linked to Isaiah 7, where Israel is under attack from a coalition of enemies. And they're severely outnumbered. They're outmatched, but God promises to rescue them in a supernatural, miraculous way to fight for them and defeat their enemies. And he gave them a sign. He said, this is how you can know I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign was a child in Isaiah 7. Not a warrior like Achilles to lead them into battle. Not a master politician to negotiate peace for them. A child. And so Ray Ortland commenting on this, he says this, the power of God is so far superior to all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by the coming of a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through human history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. Against our expectations, we find weakness, overwhelming power, and foolishness, outfoxing wisdom. Everything else has failed. However improbable, the gospel must be true. God does not need our strength or our brains. I love that line. God does not need our strength or our brains. Jesus Christ crucified is the only Savior and King of the world. In the last book of the Narnia series, you didn't think we were going to get through Advent without at least one C.S. Lewis reference, did you? The last great battle 
is fought at a place called Stable Hill. And King Tyrion and his forces are driven back to the stable that sits on top of the hill, and they're forced inside uh, because they're, they're surrounded and, and probably going to die if they don't go in. From the outside, it looks rather ordinary. It's just a small, you know, rickety building. But once they go inside, they're immediately blinded by a light. And they're, they realize, they open their eyes and realize this, this vast expanse of blue skies and rolling hills. Uh, and they're perplexed at first. And Tyrion makes a statement. It's a great statement. One of those, you know, just C.S. Lewis zingers. Where he says, it seems that the stable from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Its insides is bigger than its outside. It's a great line. That the stable seen from within is bigger, uh, and the stable seen from without are two different places. It's always bigger from the inside than it is from the outside. To the world, the baby laying in a manger may just look like a baby. I mean, just, they're cute. But what, you know, what can a baby really do? But from the inside, with the eyes of faith, you realize that, that that is why when the shepherds and when the wise men came to the stable where Jesus was born, they fell on their faces before him to worship him. Because they realized that baby right there is the healer of the whole world. The light that would undo the darkness. Now, in the Narnia book, Lucy is there. And if you don't know, Lucy is always the one with the best spiritual insights. I mean, Lucy is the one you want to be. She's the person you want to be like. And Lucy, uh, in response to Tyrion, she says, yes, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Now lastly, as we come to a close, what happens when we find the strength to stop running the world, because it does take a lot of strength, doesn't it? To stop trying to run the world, to stop looking to human solutions and put, all, put it all on his shoulders and trust in him, to put all our hope in him. What happens then? Well, I think part of what we're to learn here is that it's then that you become the light of the world. Now, Jesus is the light of the world, John 8, verse 12, but he also calls us the, calls us the light of the world. That's Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Us, collectively, a city on a hill, us in the plural. And he tells us to, as a, as a body, let our light shine in the world, to be full of brightness and beauty that push back the darkness. Now, the same, Isaiah, same idea is here in Isaiah 2, chapter 49, verse 6. He says, to the people, I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God wants his people to be like a light in the darkness. So how? How does that happen? How, how, do you get, how does he come to light up your life this way? Well, Jesus came to give us the light of life. But in order to do that, here's the gospel. He had to be himself snuffed out. And on the cross, because this baby who is born is the one who ultimately went to the cross to die for our sins. And on the cross, he took upon himself our sin and died in our place, bearing all of our condemnation, enduring the God-forsakenness, the darkness that our sins deserve. He willingly went into the deep darkness. And the gospel writers say that as he hung there on the cross, the sky went dark in the middle of the day, three o'clock in the afternoon. But as the darkness fell, there was an even deeper darkness that Jesus endured, a cosmic darkness, as God came against him in judgment for our sins. And he cried out, if you remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's the true soul darkness. That's the true God forsakenness. That is the cause of all the other darknesses of life, to feel like God has turned away from you. But here's the thing. If you put your faith in Jesus, you don't ever have to experience that. 
Apart from Jesus, you will. You may go in and out of it. It might have different names. But you will be crippled by the soul-crushing coldness and darkness of the light of God's face being turned away from you because of sin. But if you believe in the one who died for you to endure your darkness, then you can live in the light of his love. You can sunbathe your soul and God's smile. Now, what is the obedience? What is the obedience that these verses in Isaiah 9 require of us? How would you summarize that? What is the obedience? I would say that the government being on his shoulders should increase your joy. That's what we're being called to here, right? Verse 3, you've increased the joy. We rejoice before you. So he's saying rejoice that he's in charge, not you. Stop trying to control everything and everybody in your life and trust in him. But how? How do you do that? How do you come to the place where you can let go of everything that you've grasped for all of your life and give it to him and know that you're better off with him in charge? Well, you've got to believe that. You've got to believe that you're better off with him than you are all on your own. You've got to be able to read, the government shall be upon his shoulders and just sigh, oh, Thank you and feel like the weight of the world has been taken off your shoulders because you not only have, excuse me, have confidence in his power and competency, but also because you trust his heart. In order to truly repent of trying to run the whole world, you have to believe that your life is better off in his hands than it is in yours. And there's joy and peace and hope that can come from being confident in God's love. You guys all, weren't the kids, weren't the kids amazing? Isn't that so fun to have them up here? And I know all of you were like, you were just enamored and in in awe of them. I'm telling you, the best part of that, I I wasn't even watching the kids. I was watching all the parents watch the kids. That was the best thing. There's some some ladies over here. They're bebopping over here, just smiling, singing along. And I thought, and it just, because what it did was I was like, see that? Do I believe that God takes that kind of joy in me? Do you believe? If you're a parent, do you believe that God sits in the front row at whatever you're singing at and smiles and takes out his camera and takes the picture and sings along with you because there's, and enters into that experience because he is so overwhelmed uh, with love for you. See, if you believe that, there's joy and peace and hope that can come from being that confident in his love for you. And that, that is the light of God. That, that countenance that can come upon your face as a reflection of the countenance that is upon his face when he thinks of you. And once it begins to shine in you, well, then it can begin to shine from you to light up the whole world. You know, we sing at Christmas, not today, but we'll probably sing it at some point. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet and anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King whose shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste. To bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Listen, haste, haste to bring him laud. Because he is the one worthy. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father, we are overwhelmed at, um, at the wonder of what the prophet dares to say is true, that you yourself have come into our darkness in the person of Jesus, that you have not left us to ourselves, but that in our desperation and need, in our great anguish and grief and despair, in the gloom that can just so overwhelm us because of the way things seem to go in this life, that you have come to bring light, 
to the scary places of our lives, to the things that we fear the most. You've come to shine your light so that we could know you, (laughs) so that we could look and see the brightness of your countenance shining upon us in Jesus Christ. And if we could this morning but see your smile, see the twinkle in your eye as you consider us, see the joy beaming from you as you think about those you love so dearly. If we could just see it, it would light up a light inside of us that no amount of sin or discouragement or whatever it might be could hide. We would be the light of the world. And this world is a place of deep darkness. It is still a place where there are shadows that are deep, shadowy places where people so desperately need light. There are people in the city that so desperately need some light to live by, and you mean for us. You mean for us to be that light. And so forgive us that we have not been. And Jesus, we laud, we haste to laud you, the light of the world, but as we believe, would you light us up also and make us a light that would shine? so that people would see the beautiful works that you do by the Holy Spirit in us and believe as we believe. Lord, we pray this morning, we believe, but help our unbelief. So come now and continue to help us, to um, persuade us that it is a good thing indeed that the government is on your shoulders and not ours. Continue to teach us and impress it upon us until we come to believe wherever we are on the spectrum of faith this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So he sends us now into the world to bring his shalom and his righteousness and his justice to all the place that he sends us. But all of that is predicated upon that last line of that song, that you be a person who is just wondering, that his love causes you to wonder. And out of that wonder comes all of the energy and all of the joy and all of the, all of the stuff that it takes, all of the peace and hope and all of that. Uh, to live a life of mission. So wonder at his love. That's what this benediction means, that as you go, you don't go to prove yourself. You go uh, knowing that even before you go, you have the Father's smile uh, because of all that Jesus has done for you. And say, so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.